Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. I'm Sam Matler and this is the EDM Prod podcast, a talk show and interview series where I talk to artists and other interesting people in the music industry. And today we've got a very interesting person on the show. His name is Booty Vault. He's the founder of a well-known label called Heroic Recordings. He manages a number of artists including uh, San Holo and Ark Patrol and he's also the author of the SoundCloud Bible, which I've recommended to many people. In this interview, we dive deep into the music industry, answering common questions like when should you choose a manager as an artist? What will uh, record labels look like 10 to 20 years from now? Can Apple Music take down Spotify? And how can you effectively pitch your music to YouTube promotional channels? We also answer a range of other questions, uh, but you'll have to listen to the show to find out what those are. And before we get into it, I just want to remind you uh, that you can subscribe to the EDM Prod podcast on iTunes and leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews help the show get into the charts uh, so that more artists and producers can find out about it. So it'd be awesome if you could take the time to do that. Uh, if you're not listening on iTunes, you can go to edmprod.com slash iTunes and it will redirect you to the podcast page on iTunes where you can leave a review. Anyway, let's get down to business. This episode is brought to you by EDM Foundations. EDM Foundations is my course for new producers, those who've been producing for under 12 months or even those who've just started. The whole idea of the EDM Foundations course is that you learn the fundamentals of music production by actually doing and not just learning the theoretical stuff. The course consists of over 12 hours worth of streamable video where I walk you through the creation of three songs and give you advice and tips for working on your own original alongside them. We've had over 500 people sign up for this course. Many of them have had great results. If you want to learn more about the course, head over to edmfoundations.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the EDM Prog Podcast. I'm Sam Matler and with me today is Booty Vault. Booty is the co-founder of Heroic Recordings and he's also the author of the SoundCloud Bible. Uh, Booty, how's it going? Doing very well. Pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's fantastic that you're here. Uh, now, I'm really excited for this episode because because of many reasons, but one of them being that you're an incredibly interesting guy. Uh, you run a label, you manage quite a few artists and a number of other things. And I mean, for one, I don't understand how you managed to fit it all in. Uh, but how did you get started? How did you get started with a label? And how did you get started in the music industry uh, in general? Sure, good question. Um, I guess it started... Um, for me about four years ago, back when I had just started studying business administration at uh, Erasmus University here in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. And I wasn't super passionate about university, but I had figured out I was really looking for what I wanted to do, what, what was my purpose. And I, I'd settled on, I want to run my own business. I started following all these courses, these workshops at uh, our Chamber of Commerce, which is like the Government Institute for Entrepreneurship. And at the same time, my best friends had started producing music. They, they downloaded Fruity Loops and uh, started making house, electro house at the time, uh, very bloody beetroots inspired. And they put this up on SoundCloud. And I think within, within two weeks, they got 10, 20,000 plays. And this is back in the day when SoundCloud was like it is infantile stages, you know. Um, so they were one; they were probably amongst the top hundred artists at the time, just through this one track, and it was completely uncalculated. It just happened. So I guess very, very uh, serendipitously, this came together, and we we were kind of like, okay, there's some opportunity here. And since I was so focused on starting a business, I was like, guys, you know what? You guys should should do this like officially as a duo and i would start managing you and that's how we started and these guys are actually who who now are duct tape mm. whom we're about to roll their debut album out of mm -hmm. um and from there i started an agency 
began signing more artists. And I had the opportunity to work with uh, a partner who was tour manager for Sander Kleineberg at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, I was still super green. So I really didn't know what I was doing. Right. That was already a huge opportunity in itself. And I think I did that for about a year and a half whilst uh, doing my studies. And then we had about four artists and then I really figured out, okay, it wasn't the best workflow I was in with this partner. Mm. Um, so I bought him out of the company. We split our ways, also split the artists. Mm -hmm. And from there, really started focusing on the guys that, that we had. And we figured out like, hey, they're so talented, so much potential, but they didn't have the, the statistics really to back up what we were trying to do. So I was knocking on these big guys' doors, right? But we couldn't get their attention because I looked at the numbers and they were like, okay, these guys are not there yet. And that's how we decided to start the label, because we figured, hey, why not do it ourselves, learn how to leverage the internet, then generate the hype. And that's what we spent the last two years doing. So did you, when you decided to start the label, did you have any idea of what that involved? Or was it kind of just, you know, a learn as you go uh, type of thing? I think initially we had no conception of what it would become, mm. you know, like our, our idea was, okay, we'll start a label. We could distribute to stores and maybe push promos to DJs. Mm. Mm. And of course it's much more than that. Yeah, it is. It is. And we'll get into that. Uh, but you know, this is, this is a rather difficult question for someone like you because uh, you do a load of things and you don't really live a typical life. But what would a typical day look like for you? What would you work on? Typical day for me would be, well, I have to say I'm becoming increasingly uh, habituated to certain routines. So there's a few things I do personally, which are very crucial to me. And a few things I do just on a business sense that are also, also very cr crucial to me. And then the variables, of course, depend on what's on my plate for the day, right? Or for the week or whatever. Um, so usual day would be wake up early, meditate for 15 minutes, maybe more, spend half an hour, hour reading always. And then I start working and always when I start working, I try and kill the big dragons first, you know? Mm -hmm. And since, since there's a mix of things, we now have uh, a team at Heroic. We just moved into our new offices. So a lot of it would be making sure everyone's on the same page and everyone's chasing the thing that could be most important for them to tackle. So there's a bit of direction there that I try to give, integrate that into every day, you know, to make sure the team is very, very uh, well in tune. And then from that, it would be negotiating deals for the artists, whether that, those are label deals or, or otherwise, um, outlining marketing plans for the record label, making sure we have release timelines, schedules are up to date, etc. Um, talking to our agents, especially for Son, who is now getting to the point where, where we're really going to tour, like worldwide. So a lot of my work is going into understanding that now and coordinating it. And then from there, I don't know, I think I work until 7 or 8 every day, then hit the gym or go running, and um, then more reading and back to bed. All right, fantastic. Very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people listening to this have no idea of how the music industry works. And if they do, you know, it might be a very kind of basic or uh, uneducated idea. So I think it would be great to sort of unpack that a bit. And, you know, I know that a lot of producers are kind of unsure of what a record label uh, really does. Could you explain the role of a record label beyond just putting tracks up on Beatport and iTunes? Sure, absolutely. So I, th I think first and foremost, what a record label can allow you to do is for you to accelerate the growth you're looking to achieve. So the, the bare necessities will be pushing to digital service providers, so DSPs like iTunes, Spotify, etc. But those are really the bare necessities. I think where a record label could make a difference is through playing a supporting role, through connecting the artist with different artists through pushing a record with marketing. And then depending on the label, of course, there would be a focus somewhere, but uh, something we do with Heroic would be push the blogs, push the YouTube channels, 
make sure the tastemakers get it, maybe radio tastemakers as well, or specific DJs. And I think a big part of it also that we try and do, but, but also that I think the most successful labels do, is that they serve as a sort of a family. You know, so you sign with a label and you will have a recurring home to push your music. And the more you work together, the more involved the label will become because they're going to have a bigger return on their investment because you're going to be you're going to be back. Right. Mm -hmm. And and your marketing efforts are also going to be better coordinated if you are more in tune with uh, how to collaborate. Right. I see. So as for you personally, are you generally looking for artists who um, who you want to work with long term? Because I know there are some labels out there. Uh, typically smaller ones who who don't really care about the long-term kind of relationship and they'll just release the odd single. Uh, I mean, how does that dynamic kind of work with, with Heroic? Sure. Very good question, actually. I think there are multiple different, multiple business models for record labels. So there would be one that is very focused on scale and volume. Take a record label such as Monster Cat, for example, who releases three records a week every week. Or a Spinning, who does ten a week. And an Armada, who probably comes goes far beyond with the amount of imprints they have. And with their size comes a sense of being able to do that on one-off releases. But if you're to contrast that to, for example, a future classic, the record label Flume, for example... Um, Australian-based, they have a much more boutique model where their agency is intertwined with the label. So instead of releasing a lot of music, they only release selected um, issues of certain artists who they typically also represent for management or for bookings, where the release is much more a vessel to kickstart the artist than it is serving as content for the label. Oh, I see. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um one thing that I, I get a lot of questions about surprisingly is the role of a manager. Uh, I, I think a lot of people don't understand that. Sometimes they can't differentiate between what a label does and a manager does. Uh, could you quickly explain that? Absolutely. So to come back to the previous point, so what we do with Heroic is we also have the boutique agency model. So what I would like to do as we grow is our labels serve as vessels to kickstart the artist. But then we filter out the artists who have the most potential, who get the best response of the market and are the most pleasurable to work with. And we bring them in and we do management and we really kickstart them. And right now, Heroic can't be the final destination. So we deal with other labels, right, in order to kickstart a, or continue an artist's career beyond what we can do with Heroic. But I hope that in three or four or five years that our position as a label goes more towards the upper echelons. And then to answer the management question, I think more than anything, it is a matter of deciding where, deciding upon how you're going to make your decisions based on for whose betterment. So, for example, if I am, if we are acting as a label for an artist, right, then we would typically act in the best interest of the label. Whereas a manager has a lot of the same activities but it must always act in the same, in the best interest of the artist. So for example, we have some artists on the heroic label, right? Um, and if they're just releasing EPs with us, we're not doing management, right? Then, then our role to them would be, of course, marketing, supporting, pitching to the rice taste makers, etc. Maybe also a degree of branding and also giving them some free managerial advice. But we would al always do that, of course, supporting for the artist, but also to really support the label. Whereas from a management perspective, it goes far beyond, which is why, for example, we're doing deals with Monster Cat and Spinning and et cetera with, for guys like San Holo, even though they're represented by our agency. Uh, oh, that's right. I see that. That clears up a, list, a lot of things. Uh, I suppose a follow-on question from that would be, and this might be a hard one to answer, but when is the right time to get a manager? Because I know some people kind of jump to it a little bit too quickly at times and other artists uh, wait a little bit too long and get burned out because they can't manage everything. I mean, what's your opinion on that? Very good question. One that I get a lot as well. I think we could take this beyond just managers. We could take this to booking agents and representatives and publishers and etc. 
Personally, I feel that if an artist independently is unable to generate enough traction that music business professionals come to them asking to work with them, if you can't reach that stage independently, then you're not ready to work with one of those people. Unless you are in the very lucky position that you have a capable individual around you, whether that's a very good friend that's incredibly business savvy, or you have a friend who works in the music industry, um, then it might be worthwhile to start working together from the early stages. But typically what we find, and especially over time in these past four years, right, working with so many different artists, is that I found that only the people who manage to generate traction themselves are typically the people who are capable enough of accelerating that once they work with a manager or a publisher, etc. And the reason I say that is because of this. For example, recently I got an email from a, a good manager friend of mine, and he has an artist, artist not doing too well, but is super talented, and he was asking me, hey, how do I go about finding a publishing deal? And from all my experience, I know that a lot of people, and, and also us, we've, we've had the fallacy of signing with a publisher, taken in advance, far before we had that, that moment of traction, you know, where we had enough hype and things going on. And the problem there is, is that the publisher just does a lot of these deals and basically hedges their bets, their, their bets by, for example, signing 30 artists in, in six months, you know. So that if one of them blows up, then they're going to recoup their, their other advances, right, their other investments. However, that publisher, of course, is never going to work for all of those 30 people as much as he's going to do for the one person that blows up or for someone who's already blown up. And I think that is, that is, that's basically it. And artists typically think that if they aren't able to generate that traction, that a manager or a publisher, et cetera, will, will be the solution. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, very interesting. Over over recent years, a lot of artists have been taking a completely independent approach. And I think this has a lot to do with uh, the rise in social media, um, giving them the ability to do that. But, you know, a lot of them will release their own music either for free or on another platform uh, like Bandcamp and also take control of their image and marketing. Does this kind of independence uh, pose a threat to record labels? No, I think it's great. Because for exactly the, the, the reasons uh, I explained before, it's like if an artist is independently able to generate traction, then that is the mark that will signal all the other music business people, right? Whether record labels, A&Rs, publishers, agents, managers, that there's something going on that they need to investigate. And for us as Heroic, I think we also thrive on leveraging these digital solutions. And the bigger the communities exist there, the more people we're going to be able to draw if we market successfully on those platforms. Okay, I want to talk about Spotify for a moment and, and just running a label in the 21st century. So I remember back when Spotify kind of started gaining traction, a lot of people said, you know, things like it would be the, the death of the record label uh, or that running a successful label would no longer be profitable most people i think people would have said this back when itunes and all these other digital stores started gaining traction as well i could be wrong but i feel like there's kind of a bias to think that these new technologies um uh, are bad but do you think it's harder to run a label now in 2015 than it was say a decade ago probably okay definitely if we were to say 15 or 20 years ago because what's happened is, uh, don't get me wrong, I think that all these changes, right? I think the segue from LPs to cassettes to CDs to downloads to streaming, I think those are great and inevitable changes, right? I just think that the nature of the music industry is that because of physical records, the margins were so big that the music industry grew into a multi-billion dollar business which peaked around 1998. And what happened then is once iTunes was kickstarted, right? And then also the, the issue of piracy, of course, was becoming a very big thing. And now, especially with streaming, what's happened is because the distribution of content became more efficient, it also 
very much marginalized the amount of profit uh, the music was able to create, right? Because physical records, there's a lot more profit to be made on the, on the sale of a CD than there is on the download of an MP3. And the technological industry, right? Just technology in itself and also internet and adoption of internet, that happened a lot quicker, that development, that adoption, that change, than the, at the time, very bureaucratic music industry was able to adopt to that. And, and figure out changes in their business model to, to cope with all these changes. So what you see is, uh, I just wrote an article about this, like in the, since 1998, the total amount of revenue generated in the music industry has, has just dropped year after year after year after year. And with the current trajectory and with the rise in digital sales, it will take another few years until the total size of the music industry, right, yearly revenue, is going to go up in comparison to uh, the year before again. Because that amount, because still, like right now, digital downloads account for 52% of um, digital income. Okay, yeah. And, of course, like, downloading is going to fade, right, with further adoption of streaming. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but still... 2014 was the first year where the same amount or like the same percentage of physical revenues were generated by digital revenues. 2014 was the first year. So before that, there was never ever a time when digital was as much income as physical, right? So now we need to get to a stage where the growth in digital can overcompensate of the total shrinkage, shrinkage in industry um, yeah, economy. Right, okay, that's... That's fascinating. I, I mean, this kind of leads me to another question and it's one I've had on my mind for a long time. Uh, and I mean, I don't really have the, the knowledge to uh, generate an answer, but say 10 to 20 years down the track, how do you see labels being different? I mean, because I think they're going to be a lot different in terms of how they generate revenue. Uh, but how do you see them changing? Very good question. And, and this is a, I have no definitive answer to this. This is something we struggle with daily, right? To figure out how to do this, especially because we as a record label have not yet attained the size where even though we have small margins, that it's extremely profitable. So we're still very much figuring out, okay, how can we optimize cash flows? And I think one thing you're going to see is that the business models underlying digital distribution in all forms, whether that's sales on iTunes, streams on Spotify, Apple Music, or even music consumption on ad-supported platforms like YouTube or SoundCloud. I think those business models are going to be optimized in favor of the rights holders because the only thing that's holding that back right now is the lobby from the big established industries, such as um, the music industry itself, right? So major labels, um, for example, with the scandals about the deals with Spotify and SoundCloud, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also, for example, think about the radio and TV industry in the U.S. who has permanently been lobbying against the payout of neighboring rights for public performance of masters, which in the rest of the world is a very, very common thing that's adopted by pretty much every country. And I think as, as everything shifts in favor of the it's holder right and the content creators and especially because the internet basically forces the trend that way i think slowly the business models are going to adapt so for a label like us and and other independents i think it will be very much about optimizing revenues and collection through these di digital means and then a lot of it will also be okay how can you figure out how to make money on on merchandising and on sales uh of uh of the tickets and shows do you think you'll see, I mean, do you think we'll see more kind of creative uh, business models? Like I know that uh, Skrillex is labeled The Nest. I know they have some sort of subscription thing, or at least they did last time I checked. Um, I mean, do you think you'll see more of that kind of thing? Absolutely. I think the big trend here will be this, because there's such a low barrier to distribution, I think music will become, it's going to, the spread of music is going to be easier and easier and easier and easier. And, and with that comes an inherent sense of virality, right? And things, some things will just go viral and artists can accelerate quicker 
take San Holo, for example, right? We did more than 150,000 followers in a year. I think that would never be possible 10 years ago, you know? Simply because the infrastructure wasn't there to do that. And what that will also do is because there will be less money made on the distribution of content, I think what creators will do and record labels, such as um, Osla, the label of Skrillex, um, which, who, who own Nest, but also what we're That's trying right, to do yeah. is trying to figure out ways to bring our fans closer, to offer a more personal community aspect to being a fan, right? And then figuring out ways to monetize that. So Osla has a, a paid subscription model via the Drip, Drip.fm, which is an awesome company. And we're actually, we actually have something like that ourselves, which is called The Ring. We're now developing proprietary software to really customize it into the, the heroic flavor. And what we're trying to do and what they're trying to do there as well is, okay, so fan support on a, on a regular basis, right? So 10 bucks a month and in our case, five bucks a month. And in turn, you get access to all our catalog and a chat room, and you can talk to the artists and et cetera. So, so even though streaming wouldn't mean cash out of a hand immediately, right? Because we pay a subscription, for example, for Spotify. What we're hoping is that we can get people who are so close to our brand, our core followers, uh, that we could give them such a value proposition that they're willing to support us directly. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I, I didn't actually know about the, that you were doing that, but that's awesome. Uh, you mentioned Apple Music just in passing. A lot of people have been saying, you know, it's going to take down Spotify. I don't really know what to think. Uh, as a professional, do you have a, a, an opinion on this? Do you have any idea of where it's going to go? Sure, absolutely. But first and foremost, out of my experience trying Apple Music now, I, I don't think the experience is great. I think the user interface is very non-functional and it's definitely not on par with Spotify yet. But with the sheer amount of resources that Apple has, that's probably going to be fixed in the coming months. Now, in terms of whether it's going to beat Spotify, I think that Spotify is very deeply rooted in Europe. Um, it pretty much dominates the market. I think the last figure I, figure I heard here in the Netherlands is that 7% of all Dutch people have a paid Spotify subscription. 7% seven, 7 of all Dutch people? Yes, 7% of the Dutch population wow. have a paid Spotify subscription. That's wow. insane. And <laughs> the, the last time I looked at digital figures, I know that, for example, Sweden, right? It's a Swedish company. Um, that they had 92% of all the digital, digital music revenues were coming from streaming services. And I bet you the majority of that will be Spotify. However, the US still has a very download-driven culture. There's also still a lot of physical sales. So I think that what will happen is that, you know how they say a rising tide lifts all boats? I think that's going to be the case with the launch of Apple Music. I think they will be driving the trend of adoption of streaming in the U.S. I think in turn the total market share will grow. I think that will not outcompete Spotify, but rather give them a, a bigger market share to tap into. And one thing that's going to make a huge difference, of course, is that Spotify has up to date never been a profitable company. So they've never had a budget that they could allocate towards uh, marketing, especially advertising. So all their venture capital has been used to sustain the scale of growth. Whereas Apple, of course, has such a big bank account that they will be able to run marketing campaigns of an extent that is, yeah, that will, that will change the game. But I think in turn, it will convert so many people to streaming that everyone benefits. I like Spotify. I think there's that... <laughs> There's that kind of, you know, that, that bias to favor the underdog. And I feel like Spotify is the underdog in this case, especially going up against Apple. Um, but look, time will tell. Uh, anyway, I want to change gears for a moment. I've read your book, uh, The SoundCloud Bible, and, you know, I have to say it's absolutely fantastic. I think it's one of the best resources for marketing music in the modern age. Uh, what drove you to make it? Uh, firstly, thank you very much. The reason I decided to write the book is, is like I explained before, when, when we committed to starting the label, it, we 
was because we figured out that in order to open the doors, the big players, we needed to have leverage. And that leverage translated into hype, right? Building fan bases, being able to show plays, and the people were into the music. And the best ways to do that as independent artists, right? Or as an independent manager would be to leverage the internet. Because SoundCloud was really the thing that got us started, we got very accustomed to playing that platform and figuring it out how, out how we could use it to, to get plays, to get, to get promotion, to get out there. And when we started Heroic, it was very crucial to our growth, and it is still, and for an artist like Sound Hollow as well. And I think I realized about a year and a half ago that there wasn't a big resource. There, yeah, there was no comprehensive resource about SoundCloud out there. So I, I had the goal of wanting to write a book, and I was just Googling and Googling and trying to find something. There was just nothing that I found satisfactory. So that's why I set out to write the book. Right. So obviously it's about SoundCloud, but you go, you go into a lot more than just SoundCloud. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an overview of what's actually in the book? Sure, absolutely. So my goal with the book is for it to be a guide that is applicable to both rookies, first-timers, and to veterans. So if you've never used SoundCloud, I want you to be able to pick up the book, read through the book, and then during your first use of the platform, you'll be able to recognize everything, know what to do, how to set up your account, what all the capabilities of the platform are that you can utilize. But at the same time, I want people who are already veteran users to, to see that and maybe think, hey, I already know this. But then we get into the real nitty gritty, the stuff that makes the difference, which is not how you set up your account, but it's rather how can I develop a content strategy? How can I use SoundCloud to promote my music? And how can it be a tool that will help you to um, create further exposure through blogs, YouTube channels, etc.? So I suppose, in a sense, it's almost an all-in-one guide to, to marketing your music. I mean, could you say that? To an extent. I, I do feel that there is a lot more that isn't included in the book, but it simply goes beyond the scope. I think it is enough to get started with building an online presence, really dominating SoundCloud and getting the most out of it. But I'm, I'm actually right now, I'm working on my next project, uh, the Music Marketing Academy, which is which is basically by, by popular demands, by people asking me all these questions that, that also go beyond SoundCloud and me wanting to, to give a much more in-depth approach to everything about music marketing. But as a, as a starting point, the SoundCloud Bible is definitely what, what, what I intended it to be. You, know? you could read that two days and just get started and kick ass on the platform. Mm-hmm. Right, for sure. Uh, this kind of leads into the next question in, in some ways. One common struggle that a lot of producers encounter is the the business side of music. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of artists out there who, who all they want to do is make music, but at the same time, they want to build a career out of it. And to do that, you have to do more than just make good music. Um, and, you know, what advice would you give to to an artist who feels like he or she just doesn't have enough time uh, to focus on promotion and marketing and their image or brand as well as music? Sure. G- great question. One that I encounter a lot too. Um, I think this is, this is a very difficult subject because ideally, of course, you would want the artist to be fully focused on their craft, which, for example, is what I'm looking to achieve when I do management for certain artists. But I also think that, like we discussed earlier, that, that artists need to get that point of traction first where they can properly attract people who could help represent them. And that is not per se because they need to continue marketing themselves after, after they have a manager on board or a PR agent or whatever, but, but rather also because it gives a sense of understanding of the marketplace and of how to do that. And I, I think even that, let's look at a guy like Art Patrol or Son Holo, even though I do management and we have label backing behind it, and there's, there's a team, you know, and professional agents and et cetera, a lot of it also will be about how they communicate with their fans, what their conceptions are on how they want to promote their music, but also how they want it to look, what the visual aesthetic should be. So I definitely think it's an inevitable part of being a successful artist is, is understanding that marketing game. 
even if it is only up to a certain extent. This kind of relates to another question though, which is um, that a lot of people, especially on social media and in production forums, use the phrase good music markets itself, typically in response to uh, people who will ask a question about marketing or how can I get my music out there. I mean, at times I've agreed with this, but you know, in, in some respects I don't. What do you think about it? I think the answer is yes, but there should be an annotation. I think good music market it markets itself after it's been exposed to X amount of people. Mm. You know, like the same thing. If you're an amazing painter, right? You just sit inside all day, year in, year out. You make the most amazing paintings, but you never take them out of your house. And yet, it's, <laughs> you know, that's like you're never going to win. Um, so I think definitely music makes the difference, you know. Um, but, but this is... I think there is mediocre music that is very well promoted, so it does well. I think there is... So why does it, why does it do well? If it's mediocre? It's a good question. I think there, there is an extent of marketing where music can be mediocre enough to still satisfy the common people's tastes, and therefore the marketing, if it's strong enough, will be able to saturate the market. Think about really stupid pop music that dominates the charts, right, and radio. Um, I think that it, it, it hits that baseline level of satisfaction for the masses, but it's not per se artistically next level. Right, yes, yes. Yes, but, but with, with good marketing, and especially from big record labels who, who dominate charts and certain slots on the radio, those can just be pushed into getting traction. However, of course, this process becomes a, a lot more efficient if the music is actually great. And I think the artists need to realize that, like, I, I think a, a good comparison here would be blogging, for example. Uh, we, we had this discussion earlier, uh, you and I, about content and how much you create and how much you promote. And I think, I think consistency is absolutely key with music, like put out a single a month, for example. However, if you're not putting in the effort to market that single, and if you think marketing just means uploading on SoundCloud, then that's an uphill battle. That's true. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and one one thing that comes to mind, actually, have you read Seth Godin's book, Purple Cow, or The Purple Cow? I think it's just Purple Cow. I have. You have? I have not. You haven't? Oh. So, uh, I can't remember who talked about it. I think it might have been Ill Gates, but... It's a very good book for for artists to read because you know basically uh, Seth Godin says, um, or how Earl Gates put it. I haven't read the book, but I plan to. Uh, he says, you know, if you're driving down the country road and you see a cow on the side of the road, you're not going to um, really care. It's just you know a, a normal thing. Uh, if you see a purple cow, however, you're going to stop. Uh, you're going to park the car. You're going to take out your phone take a photo, put it all over social media. And in a, in a way, this kind of relates to music. If you have a song that is uh, a little bit generic, uh, average, uh, if we can use that word, it's, yeah, you can market it, but it's not going to really naturally or organically go viral. Uh, so I think that's an important point for those listening. Like, And like you said, it's much more efficient to push good music uh, i suppose it takes a bit of the work a bit of work out of the equation because it i'm trying to think of a song um recently that came out that kind of that i shared um i can't think of one in particular but there are, are songs i listen to where i just feel compelled to share it on facebook you know with my friends mm -hmm. and i feel like uh, yeah you're gonna say something yeah, so I think we're touching on a very important point here. Sure. I think that what a lot of producers do is that, especially when just starting out, right, when they haven't really found their signature sound or style yet, I think, and this is very logical, this happens in whatever expertise you're in, right, whatever, whatever, um, your profession. But you, you look at the big guys and you think, hey, what are they doing? And then you try and mimic that, your idols, etc. And as a result, of course, your music shapes sort of to what you are trying to mimic. And I think only after you hit a certain amount of 
practice hours, right? And an extent of mastery. And I know this is something you know a lot about. Um, that you get the skill set that allows you to be fully creative, but then in your own sense. And what I have found is that the artists who do best are, of course, they're artists who technically have reached a certain level, but more than anything, they're artists who, through hours and hours and hours of practice and experimenting, have found a sound and a style that is uniquely theirs, instead of an attempt to sound similar or as good as the person they're looking up to. Yeah, and, and that in turn allows them to build a fan base because their music is uniquely theirs. For example, you listen to Arc Patrol music, one of our management clients, you immediately hear it's Arc Patrol. You listen to San Holo, he's got his signature sound, you know it's San Holo. And they didn't have that at the start until they reached a point of practice and hours in and etc. that they found, hey, this is my thing. And that's where they became the purple cow. Right, definitely. As a label, do you help develop that signature sound or is it more you know, hands-off and, and let them do their own thing? We're definitely involved, but more and more, like, very much depends on the artist as well. For example, San Holo is such a well-developed musician, right? He's gone to conservatory, he's been making music 10 years, 5 hours a day. So he's got, he's got a very strong sense of direction. So our feedback, and we're definitely involved in the musical process, would be more of a reflection of what ideas we feel are good or what are not, or to give some suggestions of, hey, try this in a break, change the verse, whatever. But it's much more uh, a reflection, like a mirror, you know, quality control, than it is for other artists. But we have some other artists who are still very much developing our role as much more direction, yeah, is, is much more providing direction. Right, I see. Very interesting. Uh, now, you've talked a bit about how powerful YouTube promotion channels can be. And you've actually written a guest post for DJ Tech Tools, I believe, on how artists can best approach uh, these kind of channels. But for those listening to this, what are some of the biggest mistakes that artists make when reaching out to promotional, cha promotional channels uh, to pitch their music? Great question. I think these YouTube music channels are great simply because it's a new thing you can tap into. And they have great audiences, some of them. Pitching them is a craft in itself. I think the one thing that's going to make a world of difference is developing relationships with the people who run these channels. And they're typically very young kids between 15 and 20 who have just stuck to being very consistent with their channels. And with a little bit of effort, you'll be able to find a majority of them on Facebook or their personal email addresses. And I think if you were able to establish a relationship there and approach them not with a sense of, hey, can you, can you support my song? But rather with, hey, how are you doing? What are you up to? Love the channel. Would love to hear your story, you know? And then talk a little bit about yourself and really really try and foster relationships that's founded on interest in the person and a long-term collaboration rather than on your self-interested uh, wish for them to support your one song. I think that that's at the core of successful pitching. And then from there, it's learn how to write a successful email pitch. Always start with, hey, first name, you know, hey, Peter, hey, Paul, etc. How are you doing? Shortly summarize your music one or two paragraphs, add a streaming link, a private SoundCloud link, uh, add a download link in there. Do not use an attachment on the email, rather send a Dropbox or Google Drive link and be very forthcoming and very specific about what you want. Um, and don't send them bootlegs, don't send them unofficial remixes, don't send them mashups because they need to have the rights to all the music they upload. Right, definitely. Would would you give the same sort of advice for those same artists pitching uh, labels or, um, or other artists in, ter in terms of support? Yes, this is 100% uniform. And uh, uh, there's a few other tips I'll give. I think number one is if you want to increase your, your odds of successful pitching is, is that you need to be very specific about your value add to them. For example, we are now in the process of pitching the duct tape album and we're, we're writing to written logs and we, w we might say, hey, um, hey Peter, hope you're well, explanation about the album, then we might say, we'd love to get you involved in this release, potentially with a premiere of this track, pre-release, 
and then a feature plus an exclusive quote when the album comes out on this date. You can listen to the album here, download it here, let me know which tracks stand out to you, thank you. It's very specific, right? There's, there's no way if someone reads that email and wants to respond, he wouldn't know what to respond to. Yeah, and also the very proposition is very, very concrete. It's like, okay, they're going to get a premiere on a track plus a feature and an exclusive quote by the artist. That's very different than sending an email and saying, hey, we have this, this album coming out. Let me know what you think. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's not actionable. Um, mm. And another thing is you want to make sure that you email the right people for the right thing. Right, so if you're emailing the editorial of hip-hop at, I don't know, Billboard magazine for your next Progressive House track, <laughs> then don't be surprised they don't respond. Yeah, yeah. And if you have no prior relationships with a record label, for example, right, and, and they're very explicit about having a submission system, for example, for us, right, if you have no relationship with us, but you still send an email to me personally, and it's a demo, then I'm going to say, yeah, you should just submit via your demo system. Because we're very clear about it. we listen to everything. Mm. Oh, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, a lot of people need that advice. Because uh, I mean, it's kind of funny you mentioned make sure you're sending it to the right people. Because I've had people send me demos, and I run a, an educational website. I don't promote music, <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I fully endorse that. Um, so I've got one final question, and sure. it's about SoundCloud, which you clearly have a lot of knowledge on, uh, considering that you wrote a book on it. And there's been a lot of drama surrounding SoundCloud, especially recently. Um, some people think that it's absolutely doomed that it's going to shut down in the next year. And other people are simply a bit concerned that, I mean, you know, rightly so, because it's such a big platform. Do you think SoundCloud is under threat? Uh, do you think a different platform could rise up and take its place? Good question. I feel that all the changes SoundCloud are making now are inevitable with the amount of growth they're experiencing. And like December 2014, they reported 175 monthly, 175 million monthly users, listeners, I think. That's a huge number. And I think, I think they're growing exponentially, so that number is going to be much bigger now. And with that, of course, they're using a ton of music, of a ton of rights holders, especially major labels. And up until the launch of on SoundCloud, the advertising platform, I think there, there was no remuneration. So it's very logical to the major label said like, hey, we want to get paid for this use. So that's why SoundCloud started running advertisements, which are now only listenable in the US. But for example, we as a record label have already started monetizing our content. And it's actually opened up a revenue stream. And they are just adopting their business model to the point where this, this monetization become sustainable but I also feel that in order for them to do that successfully but also for them to thrive and keep expanding they need to get a bigger influx of money so they've been attracting a lot of venture capital but there's also rumors that they don't have yeah that they're running low on funds and thus need to do more things to make more money such as restricting plays on embedded players right so more people after X amount of plays are forced to go to a website so that they could hear the ads um, I think it's inevitable, but it does mean that SoundCloud is growing and it does mean that rights holders get paid. So all in all, I, I don't think there's a lot to worry about beyond the very small artists complaining like, hey, I can no longer put a track I don't have the rights to up on a platform that I don't own. Yeah, I, I mean, that's fair enough though, um, if you don't own it. Do you think, I wonder if they have a bit of a PR problem because... I see nothing but hate for SoundCloud on social media, mm -hmm. particularly Facebook, um, you know, and I, I, I've i seen some people say that if they put ads on it, and obviously they have now, um, that they would stop using SoundCloud and even more than that, you know, actively work against it um, to not, not let other people use it. I mean, you think that's a bit of an overreaction? I think it is inevitable. We have a Dutch saying that is that the highest tree, trees catch a lot of wind. 
in, in other words, I think that with the, the sense of scale that SoundCloud is reaching, that they're going to get a lot of hate. But I also think that the people who are complaining about the advertisements on SoundCloud are either the artists who are not making money off making music, or they're the 15-year-old kids. And I think all the artists who do have a successful career and make a living off music, whether that's through digital sales, touring, a combination, or, or whatever, right, or, or publishing income, I think these are all the people who realize that opening up a new revenue stream through people getting paid for people listening to their music is a good thing. And I also think that at the time when, set, when YouTube started rolling out ads, right, Everyone was like, hey, ads on YouTube, super annoying. And then three months later, everyone was used to it. Um, yeah, so I don't really see, see it being a big issue. Right, right, cool. Uh, I've got two last questions, and they're just quick ones. Uh, what is What piece of advice would you give someone who's listening to this, an artist who feels that they're, they're at a certain level technically, uh, sorry, uh, in terms of technical skill where they can make good music, and they want to start growing uh, them, themselves as an artist and their brand, what one piece of advice would you give to them? Great question. I would say build a release plan for yourself. Look very critically at your music. If you have 10 tracks, cut out the three best of them, drop all the other ones. Figure out how you can put out one piece of content every month and figure out a plan on how you're going to promote every piece of that content. And you're going to tap into YouTube channels, SoundCloud channels, written blogs, maybe radio tastemakers, maybe some DJs or other musicians. You're going to build databases for each of those. And then consistently, you're going to keep rolling out that music and marketing it and growing your database. And then after you've done three months, you add another three months. And then suddenly you'll see six months, I've put out six tracks. I've built a database of 200 contacts. That's, that's very good advice. It's actually practical too. Um, <laughs> What is, for, for someone who wants to learn a bit more about the music industry, is there a book or resource other than your own blog, which I have to actually plug in here because it's, it's really good. Um, is there a book or resource <laughs> that you would recommend? It's, it, of course. I, I would not, not recommend my book. No, no, absolutely. It will give you a sense of how to really get the best out of SoundCloud. But be, beyond that, I would say read The Simple Guide to Music Publishing. I'd say read. Yes, which, which is great to start understanding copyright. I think you also want to read um, Pass Man's All You Need to Know About the Music Industry, the Music Business, which is a great read. And I think those two together will help you understand the business more, especially because publishing and, and All You Need to Know About the Music Industry, those two books are very much also rooted in the old business model. And if you understand that, then you will also understand what all the commotion is about. Right, I see. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Uh, and thanks for sharing wisdom and insight into the music industry and uh, also what you do. But before you go, where can people find you online? They can find me on my blog, which is bootyvogue.com. And they can check out the SoundCloud Bible at soundcloudbible.com. And I have recently started a Twitter account and a Facebook page. So if you were to look there, I'm sure you would find me. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for coming on. And I hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been great.